G'day. Welcome to another edition of Stick Together, Australia's only national radio program dedicated to union news, workers' stories and discussion of social justice issues. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR and on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation, and we acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This show is broadcast right around the country thanks to the Community Radio Network. My name's Matt Kunkel. This week is NAIDOC Week, where we celebrate the history, culture and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. On the show this week, we'll bring you two interviews that highlight the ongoing struggle for equal rights and self-determination that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are still fighting today. But first, some union news. Dockers in the northern Italian port of Genoa are again demonstrating the best of working class solidarity. After closing the port to a ship carrying arms and military hardware to the Saudi Arabian regime last month, they have defied port management and the Italian government, indicating they would allow a ship carrying 42 shipwrecked refugees to dock there. The refugees were rescued in the Mediterranean by an NGO called Sea Watch, which has conducted several such rescues. Though after several days of standoff, the Sea Watch vessel took unilateral action and docked without authorization in the Italian port of Lampedusa, which is an island off the south coast of Italy. The ship's captain, Carol Roquette, was arrested upon arrival after Italy's hardline interior minister labelled her a pirate and a people smuggler. The General Secretary of the Fiji Trades Union Congress, Felix Anthony, was again arrested after a late-night raid of his home. Felix Anthony is being charged with making allegedly false statements to a journalist about the employment rights of water authority workers. This is the second time he's been arrested this year, as the government of former dictator Frank Barney-Marama cracks down on union activity. He was arrested on May Day this year, two days before a planned demonstration in support of increasing the minimum wage and other labour reforms. Thirteen leaders of the Education Union were also detained. This arrest comes after a police crackdown on the more than 300 workers at the Water Authority who were summarily terminated and then protested their terminations. Riot police raided union officers and forcibly removed assembled workers from the union's property. In other disturbing news, the leader of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions was arrested last week over his role in wide-scale protests against changes to laws that would see big increases to working hours of South Koreans. Both men have now been released on bail. The ILO, which is the UN's tripartite body overseeing international labour rights, has passed a new convention in Geneva last week. The text of the new treaty was adopted on the 21st of June, after two years of negotiations, and is set to codify new standards required to protect workers from workplace violence and harassment. Governments that ratify the treaty will be required to develop national laws prohibiting workplace violence and to take preventative measures such as information campaigns and requiring companies to have workplace policies on violence. The treaty also obligates governments to monitor the issue and provide access to remedies through complaint mechanisms, witness protection measures and victim services. It also requires governments to provide measures to protect victims and whistleblowers from retaliation. Despite union calls to do so, the Morrison government is yet to announce whether or not it will ratify the treaty. Tasmanian public sector workers have again taken stop work action as part of that state's bitter industrial dispute between the state Liberal government and its entire public sector workforce. Workers from the health and community services sections as well as firefighters led the charge last week. Child protection and mental health workers, members of Haksu and the CPSU, took to stop work action demanding fair pay and improved staffing, making the claims that they are critically underfunded and understaffed. Workers spoke to the media, highlighting that all Tasmanians are suffering as overworked departments strain to meet demand. Child protection workers say that there are simply not enough workers to take care of all of the state's at-risk children. 
Union members at Launceston's General Hospital also walked off the job, demanding the government abandon its wage capping policy and provide a real increase in wages in a state where wage growth is amongst the lowest in the nation. The dispute centres around the government's refusal to offer anything more than 2% per year in wages. This is an amount that would see the living standards of Tasmanians suffer further. Premier Will Hodgman has now cancelled negotiations with a number of unions, instead seeking to send the dispute to the state's Industrial Relations Commission. He has not ruled out job cuts if the commission were to provide higher pay increases than 2%. A Queensland coal miner is dead after yet another workplace accident. A 56-year-old man from Mackay was killed when a wall collapsed on him as he was operating a digger at the Middlemount coal mine last Wednesday. He is the third miner to be killed in Queensland this year, after a spate of workplace incidents. The incident will be investigated by the state government authorities, but the company and its directors will not face the potential for industrial manslaughter charges. The mining industry was exempted from the laws after the Queensland Resource Council threatened the state's Labor government with a campaign in the lead-up to the most recent election. However, with three critical incidents and a re-emergence of serious health issues relating to dustborne disease amongst miners, perhaps it's time to take another look. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Each year during NAIDOC week, we celebrate the history, culture and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's also an important week for us to examine the ongoing struggle for economic and land justice. Sovereignty of this country was never ceded, and all over this land there are fights to defend country and culture. We spoke with the Victorian Trades Hall Council's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organiser Edie Shepherd about the campaign against the racist CDP program, as well as the fight to defend country in the western districts of Victoria. Edie, thanks for joining us. Anytime, Matt. Um, Edie, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and what you're doing? Yeah, my name's Edie and I am a proud Wiradjuri and Balladong fella. So that's sort of central New South Wales. My my mob are from up around the Blue Mountains. And then Balladong country is a little bit northeast of Perth. Um, so some Noongar mob and Koori blood running through my veins. And although we've just found out that you're not actually going to be with Trades Hall for very much longer, you're moving on <laughs> to new new ventures. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's all it's all a bit scary and exciting. I'm um, moving on to be the senior community organizer at Original Power, which is Australia's first community controlled campaigning body. So we'll be working across the country, predominantly in remote communities. A lot of work around the defence of country and economic justice for mob, which is deadly as, but a big job. And it kind of brings us to the things that we'd like to talk about today, particularly economic justice and defence of country. There was a lot of talk about the racist CDP program that makes uh, Indigenous people work longer for the same welfare um, payments. Can you fill the listeners in a little bit about what that campaign looked like uh, Mm. and what's the next kind of phase in, in trying to defeat that? The sort of really cliff notes version on the community development program is we know that it's racist and it's overly punitive. Um, participants, I say that in scare quotes, um, are 70 times more likely to be breached, which means that they receive no welfare payments for eight weeks. They're required to work for five hours a day, five days a week. 
um, and what we would consider wage jobs. So we have blackfellas who don't have work out in their communities who are working council jobs and picking up rubbish and all of this sort of stuff that we would consider a wage job being taken out of communities so that private business can have free labour. In fact, they receive $13,000 per participant. Um, so that's been a campaign that's been rolling out for the last three years. The way the sort of organising structure model is, I guess, is that um, organisers will go out to where we're invited. We will have a yarn with community development program, uh, program workers because the issues sort of differ from country to country that, that we travel into um, and build power within those remote communities and build their capacity to be able to organise politically and lobby and all of that. Under the legislation, they're under the Social Security Act, so they don't have industrial protections that a union would be able to cover them for. So we have the First Nations Workers Alliance, which is free for CDP workers, $26 a year, so about 50 cents a week, for blackfellas who want to join in solidarity and $50, $52, I believe, a year for um, non-First Nations folk who want to join in solidarity. So anyone listening who's not a member of the FNWA, definitely get around it. You spoke about these workers having to work five hours a day, five days a week, so 25 hours a week of yep. what should be paid work uh, under a Work for the Dole scheme. Yet we see the actual broader Work for the Dole scheme require a, you know, again, in, in quotes, mutual obligation of 15 hours per week. Yep. Just how is it that the government can get away with such a racist policy that requires Indigenous people to work almost twice as long to, to receive the same amount of money? So there's been sort of a history where it's kind of slowly been torn apart. So historically, it's been known as the CDEP, which is the Community Development and Employment Program. In remote communities, there wasn't much pushback from remote communities because those mob out there were receiving the award wage for the work that they were doing. Progressively over governments, that's been reduced. And then particularly Nigel Scullion, see you Satan, glad he's gone, removed the E completely. Um, so it just became the community development program where there were no award wages and it just became the work for the dole, but for 25 hours a week. And because this is happening out in our remote communities, and I guess we live in a, a, on a continent where not much attention is paid to what happens out in the outback or out bush, um, it's kind of just been allowed to carry on and to languish. But it's, it's one of those things where it's not just about the income that's coming in for these families in these communities. We've just last week um, had a suicide out in a community that has been linked to the CDP because this young blackfella's father was breached for eight weeks and there was no income coming into their family. Like, this is a crisis situation for our mob. So what's next, Edie? You're off to do some work with Original Power, but also the FNWA is also going to continue its campaign. What are the next steps? Obviously, the LNP were just re-elected a month ago, um, and that was a pretty big blow for the campaign. We had commitments to completely get rid of the CDP under a Labor government. We know that we have to come back bigger and stronger. And although myself and my sister Lara, um, who's the ACTU Indigenous officer, were crying and feeling very sorry for ourselves, getting on the phone to elders out in those communities and having yarns with them, their amount of resilience and also their fire 
has been absolutely incredible. So the organising program will still continue where we'll go out, we'll train and we'll build that capacity. But we're also looking at new avenues to tackle this. So there's a couple of different routes that we can take, more conventional and non-conventional. So we're exploring legal avenues at the moment around occupational health and safety, as well as... That's something that you picked up on before, isn't it, Edie, that while these people are doing work... They're not actually protected by any of the industrial safeguards that other workers who would Mm -hmm. be considered in employment have. Absolutely. So we have blackfellas who there's a crew out in Mullen, um, which is out in Western Australia, and they're incredible. They haven't even had a visit from an organiser and they have completely organised themselves. And there was this young black fella who was asked to operate a drop saw. He didn't have shoes. He was wearing shorts and a singlet. He asked the job service provider for basic... PPE, so protective wear, safety wear. The job service provider said that they are not obliged to provide that. And this young fellow refused to undertake the activity and was breached for eight weeks, which meant that he had no income coming in for eight weeks. Because we know that these workers, they're not covered by occupational health and safety, uh, any of the acts. If they're injured at work, they've got no recourse for workers' compensation or anything like that. Legislatively, they're not workers, they're participants, and it's not work, it's activities, which is sort of like the government's way of working around all of that. It's it's an absolute disgrace. And we can see that use of semantics there really having real world consequences mm. of people not having any income and indeed, as you said, the the tragic loss of, of, of that um, that man's life about mm-hmm. um, about these things. But now, Edie, I want to kind of switch a little bit to the other thing that you mentioned at the start mm-hmm. of the conversation, which is about defence of country. Yeah. And while many people in Victoria would be across the events out in the Western districts of Victoria, out on Japawan country, can you give us a bit of an understanding about um, the protest camp that's been set up there in defence of country? There has been a Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy camp set up. We've just ticked over a year now. So these staunch blackfellas have been out living on country across three separate camps along the Western Highway in a nutshell. And it's it's obviously a complicated issue. Government want to build a road. To build that road, government would have to cut down what is sacred to Japarong people. So we've got 800-year-old-plus birthing trees. We have direction trees. We also have song lines and spirits that run th- directly through the land that government want to bulldoze. Um, and I think that it is our imperative as the progressive left more broadly to stand in solidarity with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in their defensive country because at the end of the day, our country is all we have. It is extensions of our body. It is a piece of us that if that is destroyed, we will never have back. There's currently a case in federal court. We've repeatedly have had the stop work being pushed back. So the most recent update from the court case is now the date is in August that trucks can start rolling. But this is also the, the fourth time that that date's been pushed back. And as you said, the protest camp is now just more than a year old. Mm -hmm. It appears to have won a number of concessions from the Victorian government about both the route of the road, but also the timing of the building. But there's still some work to do, isn't there? There's a number of trees that have been saved, but it also, in the diverted route, will cut directly across a song line. So this, these are the stories of Japarong people's creators and spirits and history and culture and holds the law of their country. Um, so there's questions around um, how, how do we conclude this dispute in a way that protects country, protects culture, 
roads and bridges and tunnels in Victoria are usually made by union labour. Um, so what's the union movement's role been in this process? So we were contacted by Japarong Mob. They wrote a letter and a motion that they were circulating to trade unions that they wanted their executive to pass, basically standing in solidarity. That landed on my desk and I went, right, we've we've got to do something about that. So the first thing that I did was I went out onto camp and met some of the mob up there uh, where I got to meet Auntie Sandra Onus, who has a really long history with the trade union movement and with Trades Hall itself. In fact, her daughter, Tracy, was the first Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organiser at Trades Hall back in the late 80s and early 90s. From that meeting, myself and other folks from Trades Hall knew that it was absolutely our duty to do what we could to provide solidarity to um, the Japarong mob up there. So we've had lots of conversations, particularly with the building industry group, and managed to find a consensus within uh, the union movement and our affiliates that they would not um, break ground. Union workers would not break that ground. And although we haven't seen like a fully organised green or black ban in a long time, that's that's essentially what this would be if it came to it. The union movement have agreed, has passed through their executives and their organisers in the area are aware that union workers are not doing that work. And, I mean, you can't build a road without workers, right? Anita, if people want to get more involved in that campaign to defend the Japarung country, um, how can they find out more information? It's on. It's a Facebook group, the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy. Right on the pinned post is the link to a Google Drive that has all of the information that they want folks to know. You can also go on dwembassy.com.au to find out some of that information. But at the end of the day, um, boots on the ground is sort of the best kind of solidarity that you can provide. Even if it's only for a couple of hours, head up head up towards Ararat. You can't really miss the camps on the Western Highway. There are big Aboriginal flags. It's, it's staunch and it's beautiful. So, Edie, before you go, um, it's obviously NAIDOC week this week and you're running an event actually uh, Wednesday, today, um, at the Trades Hall Council. Can you give us a bit more of information about that? Yeah, so we'll be having a bit of a yarn over some drinks and a bit of food. We're, we're going to be talking all things black fights and black issues within a white democracy. So if you're in Melbourne uh, this Wednesday, the what third. is it, the 3rd of July now? 6.30pm. Um, 6.30pm at Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Edie Shepherd, thanks so much for coming in and joining us on Stick Together. Anytime, Matt. You're listening to Stick Together, right around the country on the Community Radio Network. That was Edie Shepherd from the Victorian Trades Hall Council. There's another fight raging up in Ipswich, just to the west of Brisbane, where activists are trying to defend the site of the Deeming Creek mission. We spoke with the campaign spokesperson, Wade Thompson, and listeners should be aware that the following audio contains the names of people who have passed away. My name's Wade Thompson. I'm a, I'm a Yorupal man, Yagra man in, um, in Ipswich. Been been elected spokesman by, by my elders to, to speak on behalf of them. In regards of, uh, of uh, protecting a mission site up here, that's, that's under the threat of development. Can you tell us a little bit about the country and why it's so important to your people? Ever since I grew up, I grew up um, um, Deepen Creek Mission was always was always a part of our our story. You know, the old people always talk about Deepen Creek Mission, and um, and that's always been a part of our history. Um, we were shocked to find that most Ipswich people have been you know, from Ipswich, and they they weren't even aware of the significance of the site. And uh, I'm being approached by them going, "Wow, well, I didn't know that was out there." And saying, "Yeah, it's always been a part of our." 
of our stories um, growing up. We've got a lot of people uh, buried out there. I've personally got people buried there. There's, they, they say that there's somewhere between 60 and 230 graves out there. No one really knows um, exactly how many is buried out there. Government departments, local uh, local governments and state governments don't know exactly how many is buried out there. But we, we've always been known that, that there is a lot of people buried out there. My, my officers were included. Some of the last kings and queens, which are, which are my um, three times great-grandfather and grandmother, are buried out there, King Jackie Harvey of Laidley. And uh, his 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 wife, the Queen Marianne Harvey of um, of Laidley, they're buried out there. Their daughter, who was uh, on uh, court records saying in court that she was the last princess of the people, she's buried out there. Um, you know, these are all my my um, my my ancestors. They're all buried out there. I just tell one of these people um, um, going out there and digging up my old people. Mm. I think they deserve a lot more respect than that. And what is it that the government wants to do with the site? Ultimately they want to build like something like 930 houses I do believe. On my land, on my country, and it's a big country my tribal country, and it goes from you know, mouth of the Brisbane to the Toowoomba Range, down to the New South Wales border up along the Logan River Way which is a big country, you know, most of South East Queensland. And that's being developed and people are saying that we're being unreasonable. A lot of other projects are going on here, and none of them, my people have stood up and argued about it. But this one here, this this, this special little place here for our people, there should have been approached and dealt with in a, in a different way than all the others. It should There should have been uh, more community consultation involved. And I lay this at the hands of um, of a government department, that's it, who were, um, who were stating me on numerous occasions that they are the trustees of our land. And if they're the trustees of their lens, they should have been working on our behalf, should have done the right protocols and procedures and grabbed us all together as a community. When all that area become a priority, high-priority development area, that we would have said, listen, that little, we don't mind, but that little area there, is there any way we can do anything to, to preserve that? And not only that little bit what you're saying is ours, we know that mission goes even bigger than that. The land is more or less stolen from my, my people because when they when they made Perga and they all moved to Perga Mission, somehow, and... You know, um, all the all the documents and deeds and titles went missing over it, so they can't prove what happened. You know what I mean? Like it's pretty convenient, isn't it? Yeah, it's very convenient. It's a very convenient argument for them. So when it became apparent that the land was under threat of development, there was a protest camp set up. Can you tell us a little bit more about the camp and and what's been going on out there? Yeah, well, some of some of our women in the in the area decided to go out there and uh, pitch up a camp um, about four or five months ago. They went out there, they started camping for a while, um, started getting a lot of support f- uh, from the from the local people around the area, coming down and, and giving the support. And, and the unions have uh, come down. They started helping with a bit of the infrastructure and, and tents and donating a lot of stuff. Yeah, and uh, we've we've been there since. And about two months or maybe nearly three months ago, there was a bit of a dispute. I mean, the police moved into the camp to try and remove you. Uh, yeah. And there was some local union workers on there on the line pushing back. Can you can you tell us about the events of that day? Yeah, well, um, I, I, I was I was home and I got a call early on that that uh, early that morning saying, oh, you know, uh, the police have kicked everyone out. So so I, I jumped in my car and, and went straight down there and I and I noticed uh, uh, a lot of people gathering around and there was a wall of police and um, um, that was a pretty you know wild day, but. Um, an empowering day too. Uh, the, the unions were there backing us up 100%. Some of these blokes, I mean, like they were, they were just as passionate about our cause. I can't thank the unions enough for, for what they've done for us out there. 
on that day. Um, they really represented well and really stood up for it at a time of, of need and justice. There was a recent report on the site that showed just the large extent at which there was a number of different burials on that site. Yeah. Now, the that report's been handed to government. Has there been any movement from the government to, you know, start moving things in your favour out there? No, well, th- that's it, see, because the cemetery, because no one didn't know what the cemetery was. So so one of my old, old uncle, now he passed away, he went out there and he noticed uh, all these rocks in the line and uh, and a gravestone, all these rocks all all in rows, which usually signifies to us that, you know, it means something, something that's uh, pertaining to a cemetery is around there. So he lobbied the, the government at the time, this was in the 70s, I think, early 80s, to uh, call that a cemetery. Um, the government couldn't find any records of that at the time, so they just um, gave us a parcel of land and said, well, this is a cemetery. He pushed to get more land and all that, and they said, no, we, you know, this is all we're giving you. Anyway, moving on to this day, ground-penetrating radar, which they, they, uh, that's done at a ground-penetrating radar of the site, and we found that there is actually a disturbance that goes to the north side of north side property of the cemetery, which is owned by A.V. Jennings which um, they are looking at developing. So uh, while I, when I approached Datsub about it on, on numerous occasions, um, and, they're, and they're more or less the trustees of our, of our land on our behalf, I don't believe they've been acting on our behalf, you know, otherwise they'd be, they'd be chasing this up. So, so more or less half the cemetery is under Datsub control, and the other half of the cemetery is currently on uh, A.V. Jennings' property. When I approached uh, uh, Datsub on three or four occasions, Asking what are they doing about it, or you know, and this has been going on for two years. Um, they have told me each time that they're not interested, they can't do anything. Um, it's up to AV Jennings what they do with it, which I find really, really outrageous. Really, I, I think it's crazy that there's these people that are supposed to be trustees of their land, um, you know, on our behalf, and yet they're showing really no interest in exactly where the cemetery is or how long it goes for. Well, what's next, Wade? So, obviously, these, this land is still under threat and the development is still scheduled to go ahead. What, what are the yeah. next steps and how can people find out more information about your fight? Well, the next steps are we're still out there. We're still camping to this day. We have a Saved Even Creek Facebook page. Um, we try and um, put up as much as possible. We have a lot of um, uh, information that we that we that we share on there. Uh, we have open days where people can come and, and they you can actually get a feel of the place. Any any local people know it? Uh, no, uh, we're always there with the cupra boiling up our kettle, so um, you can pop in and have a yarn and um, just any sort of support that you can provide is great. Well, Wade Thompson, thanks very much for joining us on Stick Together, and good luck with your fight. Well, that's all we have time for this week on the show. Thanks to Wade and Edie for talking with us. If you'd like to get more information about any of the campaigns that have been discussed today, we'll post the links on the Facebook page. Just search for Stick Together Program. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR with generous financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. It's broadcast right around the country thanks to the good people at the Community Radio Network. You can do your bit, though, to keep workers' stories on the air by calling your local community radio station and subscribing today. If you'd like to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can call us on 03 9419 8377 or email us at sticktogether3cr at Let us know what you thought of this week's show. We always love to get your feedback. If you want to listen back to this or other recent episodes of the show, you can find the podcast at www.3cr.org.au forward slash sticktogether. We're also on iTunes. Finally, remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. I'm Matt Kunkel. Until next time, stick together. Stick together.